Today is one of those non-confrontational messages that don't step on any toes or run into any firmly held beliefs that people have had for centuries. Because um, that's, that's what I do. I, I, I don't bring up controversial topics ever. Um, now that I've repented of that light, let's move forward with today. Uh, so what we've been doing over the last few weeks and what we started for this year is we've been talking about the gospel message and we're going to be on the gospel message for the whole year. There's, there's a couple of things I'm sure we'll detour periodically here and there but because um, uh, that's just the way things work, but we're going to be focusing on the gospel until we're, until we're done with them. And uh, the neat thing is we spent two weeks talking about it already. We haven't even gotten into the gospels. I think I've used one scripture verse from the actual Gospels while we've been talking about the Gospels, and I think that's a good thing because we've got to remember that the Gospel is not just the first four books of the New Testament. The Gospel is the Bible. It's the whole thing. There's a great quote from Alistair Begg. Uh, he says that, that uh, uh, the Gospel is Jesus, and Jesus is the Bible. And if you think about it, in, in the way he, pre- he puts it, I love it. He says, in the Old Testament, he's expected. In the New Testament, he arrives. And in the, uh, uh, in, the, in the epistles, he's explained, and in Revelation, he's expected. So you got Jesus through the entire Bible, and we have to, to think about what we're looking at uh, a little bit differently. Um, but one of the things I think we've come to a firm understanding of over the last couple of weeks is that we have no ability to save ourselves. There's, there's nothing you can do that is going to make you right with God outside of knowing the person and the, the personal salvation through Christ's work on the cross. There's nothing, there's nothing that we can do. It's a gift from God and it is only achievable by God. We're even reminded of that in Ephesians 2 when Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So what he's saying is you can, you can be a proud Christian, and you should be proud to be a Christian because that's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to exist in the world and to walk in the world knowing that you have salvation and forgiveness of thin, sin through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a that's thing you can be proud of without being prideful. Okay? but we can't brag about it. So you may have been saved by grace, but you should have seen what I did to get salvation. I mean, God loves you, but he, capital L, loves me. No, he loves us all the same. But this idea that you do nothing to save yourself, there's nothing physical you do, to earn that salvation. That actually has created a problem within the church, and we're going to deal with that problem today, between uh, today and next week. We're going to be dealing with this this question, do I have any part to play in my salvation? And if so, what is that part? There's this idea in the church that our destiny has been written. From the foundations of the earth, all things have already been decided. We're just living it out now. And the more modern way of saying it is, are we saved by election or choice? Have we been, have we been, are all the people who will ever be saved already determined? And now all we're doing is waiting for the clock to tick out. But there's really nothing you can do to either be saved or not saved because it's already determined. This is a, this is an issue within the church and it's actually caused this ridiculous divide within the church. And, and for, for my part, I don't understand why we've actually allowed it to be, to have this kind of authority within the church. 
because we're still alive, right? We still got plenty of scripture that says go into all the world and, and, and make disciples. We have all this stuff. Why argue about whether or not God chose or God knows? At the end of the day, who cares? Just go do it. But it is an issue, and at the very least, we need to understand what that issue is, mainly because for this whole year, we're going to be talking about the gospel message, and we need to talk about it in a specific direction. And when you're dealing with someone, when you're talking with, with, with other Christians, because this is an in-house issue, we have to at least be able to avoid stupid arguments that have no fruit to them whatsoever. So one of the things it comes down to is this idea that on one side of the church, you have this doctrine of election, commonly known as Calvinism. Um, Calvin didn't actually come up with this doctrine. It actually goes all the way back to Augustine. It can even be tracked a little bit further than that. But Calvin is the one who made it famous, so we call it Calvinism. And it says that God has, from the foundations of the earth, chosen all who would be saved. It, it's, it's already written. Whether or not your family, your friends, your relatives, whoever, whether or not they're going to be saved or not be saved, it's already predetermined, and there's nothing you can do about it, so just live your life. That's essentially Calvinism. We're going to get into a little bit more of it later, but that's, that's essentially the idea. The ones who were chosen are called the elect. That word is in your Bible, by the way. I think it's misused. And a lot, and uh, uh, through a lot of interpretation, but we'll get to that eventually. And it's the elect that will be saved, and only the elect that will be saved. You either are or you are not. It's encouraging, isn't it? It's just so full of hope. Now, on the other side of the church, you have this doctrine of free will and personal choice, which drives Calvinists crazy. They say it's a violation of the sovereignty of God. I don't see how that's a violation of the sovereignty of God because you, if, even if I know what's going to happen and I choose not to intervene, God can still be sovereign. You can be so sovereign that you allow choice. I'll give you a quick example. I have this dog, Archie, who never does anything wrong, ever. He's a golden retriever. Obviously, they're very well behaved, and they never eat anything off of a counter that they shouldn't eat, right? So if I leave the little baby gate we have open to the kitchen... And I'm sitting on the couch, and I see him get up, look at me, wondering if I'm paying attention. And I see him walk into the kitchen. Do I know what he's doing? Of course I do. Because some of dinner's still on the stove, probably. Wow. <laughs> I know exactly what's happening, and I can either choose to intervene or not. Does that mean that I'm not in control of my home? No. See, I, I know, but I don't have to get involved if I don't want to. Now, I can always just say, Archie, and he knows. It's usually a little louder and slightly deeper, but, you know, you, you get the idea. It doesn't have anything to do with the sovereignty of God. It has to do with the love of God. We'll get to that as we continue. So, this idea of personal, personal free will is that there is a difference between knowing and choosing. God knows the beginning from the end. We know that to be true. But I believe he also leaves the choice to believe or not to believe up to the individual. And mainly because we know that those who don't believe have a judgment waiting for them. How do you judge someone who you've predetermined to believe or not believe? If the choice isn't up to them, then the judgment is not just. 
That's one of the core problems with this doctrine. But we will, we will continue. Now, obviously, there's dozens of middle ground views as well, and there's lots of people who argue about this thing, but it typically leaves people in one of two camps, in either the Calvinist or the free will camp. Most people know, it, know the free will side as Arminianism, um, but that's actually not accurate. Arminianism is a lot closer to Calvinism than most people realize, so we're, we're going we're gonna to stick with the idea of Calvinism versus free will because I think that's more accurate to what we're talking about. Now, obviously, for full disclosure, I am not a Calvinist. I never have been. I think it's a very interesting doctrine, and from a historical perspective, it's actually played a very important role in the, in the growth of the church around the world. There are a lot of people that, that I listen to today um, that are Calvinists, and I don't have a problem with that. You know, I recommend people listen to, John, to people like John MacArthur, um, who is a hardcore Calvinist. I don't agree with him on that, but that doesn't mean I'm going to throw the rest of his pretty incredible Bible teaching out the window because I disagree with one thing that in the end of the day doesn't matter. So if you go online, you can find very heated debates, I'm, and I mean heated debates on both sides of this issue. It gets ugly sometimes, and I'll watch the videos thinking, man, what is... What is with these people? You know, it's like, we're, we're out there to spread the love of, love of God, you stupid heathens. <laughs> You're like, oh, that's, this is good. This, is, this, this makes us look amazing, you know? <laughs> and as much as I honestly don't like this topic, teaching on this particular topic, I, I, I don't necessarily enjoy it, but like I said, we're talking about the gospel this year. And this is a, this is a central issue within the church when it comes to our understanding of the gospel, because there really are only two choices. Either God made the choice for you, or you make the choice. And how you proceed with the way the gospel is presented is going to come down to what you believe in that choice. And there are other people who may argue with you. And we need to at least be able to have a, a conversation to find some sort of common ground so we can work together. Now, I'm not going to go deep into this issue. I'm not going to deal with all of the fine points of these, this doctrine because, to be honest, it's boring. And, I, and, and coming from a nerd, it's boring. It comes down to like, old, you know, like a bunch of old you know, white Europeans arguing about words is really what it comes down to. It's not very fruitful, um, and I think at the end of the day, we need to understand the argument, but we need to understand the argument so that we can avoid the argument. Do you understand what I'm saying? Paul says it like this, this is a faithful saying and things uh, I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men, listen to this, but avoid foolish disputes over genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. So you, you know, our, if you want to debate Scripture, that's great, but don't debate them to the point where you divide, because at the end of the day, what good does that do? It doesn't help anything. So we don't learn about these things, the topics like what we're talking about now, we don't learn about them so that we can win arguments. We don't need to convince everyone around us how amazingly intelligent we are. I might be small in size, but I'm massive as an intellect, so fear me. No. We learn about these things so that we can, like Scripture says, even a fool will be seen wise when they know when to shut up. 
We learn about these things so we can understand what we don't need to argue about so that for our part, we can choose to live peaceably with all men. The more we know and understand issues like this, the more we can push the minor stuff to the side and focus on what's actually important. But if you don't know, then these issues can actually become a stumbling block to you in your ministry, in your personal life, and in your family life. They can become serious issues. So we need to understand enough to be able to avoid that happening. So that's why we look at stuff like this. Now in John chapter 3, Jesus says something unique in all of Scripture in regards to our salvation. And it's, it's, it's so amazing. It's such a key to everything that we do. And Jesus answered and said to him, talking to Nicodemus, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Isn't it wonderful how clear and precise that statement is? All the details we need to know to understand salvation, right there. All we need to do is be born again. How do you, how do, you do that? Even Nicodemus is like, uh, what am I supposed to do? Crawl back up inside my mom and be born again? That's not me saying it. He's saying that. But it's a good question because that sounds weird. Okay? It just sounds weird. Here it is. This, you know, you're a mighty prophet of God, and I can tell. I'm sorry. What did you just say I need to do to be saved? Maybe, maybe he isn't what I think he is. And so Jesus goes on to continue teaching him. This idea of being born again is not negotiable. It is the only way to see the kingdom of God. So this is obviously something extremely important, but we're also not given a, a ton of direction. And the directions that we are given are things like repent, believe, confess with your mouth, and believe with your heart. Uh, okay, but we still haven't gotten to this very detailed account of how do I become born again. If you look at the Old Testament law and everything that they had to do in order to, be, in order to, to find forgiveness, it was so detailed. It, I mean, down to the, to the most minute detail. And then here comes Jesus and he says, be born again. Oh, come on. Give me something. But then further down in John 3.16, he says this. He says, whoever believes in him, capital H, should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him. And he's talking about himself. But now let me ask you a question. Whoever, your Bible actually may even say whosoever, believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So that we understand that the key to being born again is believing. And this section here says, whosoever or whoever believes. Doesn't that sound like it means everybody and anybody has the choice to believe? But now you got these other passages, like Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, said, blessed be God, the, our Father uh, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined, uh-oh, us to adoption as sons by Christ Jesus to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of God, the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. 
Ah, rats. It's that predestined word again. And before the foundations of the earth, he chose us. How do you reconcile those two things? Well, now I am going to reconcile this passage next week. (laughs) You got to come back. Because it's actually quite simple. But passages like this, if you just read them, they can give you the impression that the choice is already made. But here's one of the things we need to remember. How many of you speak another language? And I'm going to like speak and read. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I speak Canadian. <laughs> this is about it. I can throw an A on the end of any word, you know. Serge, I know you do. Here is a truth about translation. Every time you translate something from one language to another, another something is lost. Every single time. There is no exception to that rule. There is always something lost in the translation because the words are not universal across cultures. And we have to remember that we have to put this in the context of first century Jews and Gentiles. They're going to understand something that we need to learn. I've said this a thousand times. Scripture can never mean to us what it could never have meant to them. So the first step of a Bible student is to understand what it meant to them. Not the English words, but the context and the language of the first century. And that's what we're going to do next week when we start looking at this passage. And what you're going to see is it just doesn't contradict the idea of free will at all. It actually reinforces it. Enough of the commercial for next week. Let's move on. So now let me ask you this question. Does God know the beginning from the end? Yes. Of course he does. Does God already know who will or will not come to faith? Oh, that's a tricky one. Yes, he does. But does the fact that he knows mean that he chose? That's the challenge. And what it comes down to for me is what lines up best with the character and nature of God? What lines up with the scripture that we've been given? You have to evaluate scripture in context with the character of God. If you don't, you're going to get locked into words which will change meaning depending on what century you have to be in, and they can lead you in very difficult directions. All scripture has to fall in line with the character and nature of God. If it doesn't, then we're, we're in bad places. You'll see that here in just a second. Now, but to those who believe in the doctrine of election, they say, absolutely, God chose. And to those who do not, they say, no, God did not choose, but he simply knows. Now, the easiest way to understand this doctrine of election is through this acronym called TULIP. Yeah, I know it's really... Flowers. We're really into this. This is going to be great. The fundamentals of Calvinism are summed up in what are called the five points. And the five points of Calvinism are, make up this acronym called the TULIP. Um, and we're not going to, like I said, we're not going to look in depth in these because I could spend two or three weeks on each one of these without a problem. So we're not going to do that uh, because I value your time and I just don't want to. It's, it, if, if you want to learn more about this, there's, there's a, um, a wonderful YouTube channel called Bible Thinker. It's by Mike Winger. He does tremendous job dissecting 
the, the Calvinist argument, and, and you can listen to it at your will. And it, he, he does, it's one of those things, there's no reason to reinvent the wheel. Just, just send someone to the place where they can actually get it. He does a tremendous job. Um, so like Mike, Mike Winger on YouTube, BibleThinker.org, um, all the videos are there. It's really done, done quite well. And he actually does it. There's other people who do it as good, but they're not as kind. <laughs> um, he's actually kind when he does it, so it's a, it's a good way to, to go about doing it, uh, to go about learning a little bit more about this. So now I want to remind you that as we're going through this, we are not in any way, shape, or form talking down to people who believe in Calvinism. We're not lessening their faith. We're not believing that they're, they're worth, worth less than we are. We're not believing that their understanding of salvation is less valuable than ours. What we're doing is we're evaluating the doctrine and we're taking a look at whether or not this lines up with what we know to be true about the character and nature of God or not. Because even when you're face-to-face with someone who may be steeped in hardcore Calvinism and they do not like anything that you're saying, because Calvinists do have a tendency of being quite arrogant. I'm, I'm just warning you, they do. You don't have to get involved with that. Because we're talking about the theology, not the individual. Okay? It's very important that we understand that. Because even when we're talking about debates between Christians, we still got to love one another in the process. You know? I might see you in heaven, but I'm not talking to you when we're there. You know, it's just, it's just a horrible way to live. You know what I'm saying? Um, so, uh, so, like I said, um, and there are, there are also a bunch of people in the world um, that will call themselves Calvinists, but what they'll say is that I'm a three- or four-point Calvinist. And because what I'm going to show you here in just a minute, they don't like it. They don't like the conclusion that these doctrinal positions take them to, so they, they say, you know what, I, I, I want to be a Calvinist, but I don't want to be a Calvinist. I don't want to include this. It's kind of like, I'm, an, I'm, I'm a 34-state American, but I don't want to be a 50-state American because some of those liberals, you know, I don't want to recognize the existence of the... the then No! <laughs> No, you either are or you're not. Christianity is the same way. God says you're either for me or against me. There is no middle ground. It's, just, it's the same thing. And the reason I believe they don't like these points is because they don't line up with the character or nature of God and they know it. And so if we can stay on the kind side of the argument, we may actually win them into a different way of thinking. So we'll, we'll look at that. So the first part of TULIP is called total depravity. Hope you understand this. You are totally depraved. You are a horrible, wicked, evil person, incapable of even doing anything that even remotely looks like it could possibly be good at some point in time ever in history. You're a terrible person. I'm not making that up. That's the view. Because of the fall of man, you are so depraved. You are so incapable of kindness in any way, shape, or form. You're so disgusting before God you don't even have the ability of saying yes to the gospel when it's actually presented to you. That's how bad you are. That's what total depravity means. Now, the core of this in relationship to the doctrine is literally that you are so depraved that when the gospel message is presented to you, you are incapable of actually embracing it. And so, if you were one of the elect those chosen before the foundations of the earth to be saved, when the time comes that you're presented with the gospel, God, I'm not making this up, God is going to pre-save you. He's by imparting enough of his grace into your life that you now are good enough to recognize that you're horrible and you can accept the grace of God. 
So in order to, to be saved by grace, you need God's grace so that you can understand that you're a horrible, pathetic, depraved person so that you can accept his grace and now you can be saved by faith. Did that sound weird to anybody? Okay, if it sounded weird to you, that's called discernment. Because it's weird. The underlying issue with this viewpoint is that, and, and the reason why they come to this is they believe that you are, you are still saved by grace through faith, okay? But if you have the ability to make the choice on your own, then that's a work. You understand what I'm saying? And we are not saved by works, lest we should boast. So what they have done is they've put faith in the category of a work, which leaves the question, is faith a work? Now, we're going to be covering this next week. Spoiler alert, no, it's not. And I'm going to show it to you in Scripture. Not philosophically, I'm going to show you in the pages of Scripture where we're, to- where we're shown faith is not a work. So believing is not a work. And at the same time, if we have to get God's grace in order to accept God's grace, then isn't God's grace not enough? Is God's grace sufficient the first time or not? That's an, that's a, that's an important, interesting question. Because if I need to take God's grace so that I can be good enough to receive God's grace, then I have to ask, is God's grace not greater than sin? Because if it is, I shouldn't need it twice. His grace should be sufficient for me. Now, very interestingly, Paul has this conversation with God where Paul has this thorn in the flesh and he's talking to the church in Corinth and he says, three times I pleaded with God and and to take this thing from me, but God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, listen to this last part. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So scripture says, my grace is enough. And when you're at your weakest, I'm at my strongest. So now, wait a second. If we're not even saved, isn't that our weakest? You know, I'm just, I'm just spitballing here, but I'm pretty sure if God's grace is sufficient, then it's always going to be sufficient. And I don't need it twice. I don't need to be pre-saved so I can get saved. I just need to say yes to the gospel message. Now, I'm going to hit the last four at the same time because they all kind of lump into the same idea, and you'll get this idea, of, uh, this, this understanding of what we're talking about. The last four of the, of the tulip are unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the preservation or perseverance of the saints, depending on who you're talking to. And in the simplest terms, this is what this means. Unconditional election is that God has already written your life story. You are just acting it out. God has elected or chosen all the people who will ever be saved throughout all time, and there's nothing you can do about it one way or the other, so just deal with it. That's unconditional election. Limited atonement means this, that Jesus did not die for all on the cross. He only died for the elect. Yeah, some of your faces just went, what? Again, that's called discernment. Because Scripture does not bear that out. 
These are the ones that people like, that they don't like. They want to be the other, they like, they like the other parts, but they don't like these parts. Now, irresistible grace means that when that preordained moment of your conversion comes, no matter how pathetic you are, the grace of God will be so irresistible, you will fall on your knees and repent and accept Christ. Because his grace is irresistible and that's your appointed moment. And the perseverance of the saints is that once you are saved, you will never fall away. And so, if you ever wander from Christianity into an ungodly lifestyle or some other sin, you didn't lose your faith. You were never a Christian to begin with. That's the view. So when you think about this, Calvinism begins on the, on the basic premises that you are so bad you could not even come to faith on your own if you even tried. And because God has already chosen everybody from the foundations of the earth, he has already selected who's going to be in heaven, and he's already selected who's going to be in hell, and it doesn't matter because Jesus only died for the ones who are going to heaven. Oh, and by the way, when your day comes to either believe or not believe, it, your decision has already been made, so don't worry about having to make the decision. It's already been done. Oh, and by the way, once you make that decision, you're good for the rest of your life. You'll never fall away. You'll never have problems. You'll never have sin. <laughs> yeah. There'll never be another sin in your life because God preserves those whom he's chosen. Now, the obvious question that gets asked here, um, whenever there's a question and answer session when you're dealing with the topic of Calvinism, this question always comes up. And uh, the, the question is, why even come to church? Why minister? Why share my faith? Why even read my Bible? If it's already decided, why even do this? I mean, they, they think about this. A Sunday morning, there are so many other things that we could do on a Sunday morning. Bible studies, ha, who cares? There's obviously no test to get in heaven. You've already entered or not. Can you imagine getting up to heaven and giving a Scantron form and a number two pencil? Half of you would just panic. Oh, no. I hope there's no minor prophets on here because I've never read them. <laughs> The answer most com commonly given by the leaders in this, in this movement is that we do it because the Bible tells us to and because we have a part to play in the process. It may have already been written, but we have to live it out. Is it just me or does that sound like a complete and total cop-out? See, I don't have to reconcile those two things because God's going to do it. Oh No, no, you have to reconcile those two things because if you admit to one, you've completely, you basically, you admitted that the doctrine doesn't exist. If we have to act out our faith, then Calvinism doesn't exist. Because now we have a part to play. And if we have a part to play, well, then there's choices we have to make. Oh, no, no, you can't make choices. You're just supposed to make choices. But remember, they're not actually choices. They feel like choices, but they're not really choices. It's like going to a buffet with one item. But then again, I actually had that argument put to me once. It's like going to a buffet with one item. I said, well, I can still choose not to eat. Like, you know, I hate people like you. Like, never heard that before. <laughs> here's, here's a question. If we still have a part to play in this process, then and this, this, is, this is why I don't like this, this particular topic. If we actually have a part to play, which they confess that we do, 
why even argue the point? Why argue the point? If we have a part to play, then ditch the argument and let free will run, because at least free will has some urgency attached to it. At the very least, if everyone just said, you know what, we're supposed to do this and we're supposed to choose to do it, then the right outcome happens no matter what because we still believe we're supposed to go into the world and preach the gospel. No matter how you look at it, the free will, the free will argument is the better of the two. And if Calvinists really believed in what they were saying, then they would, they would have to agree that all the people who believe in free will were predestined from the foundations of the earth to believe in free will. So why argue? <laughs> It's, it's a completely fruitless debate, but it has divided the church for 400 years. And I still haven't figured out why. Here's the other issue. If you believe in this doctrine, and this is, this is, this is, this is why it's so important for us to understand the difference here. If you believe fully this doctrine of election, then by default, what you are saying is that everything that has ever happened to everyone, everywhere throughout all time, was preordained by the will of God. Preordained by the will of God because it pleased God to make it happen. That's what this is saying. So you think about this. All wars, all hunger and starvation, all famines, the Holocaust, the African genocides, all abortions, which since, 19, since the 1970s to now is over a billion worldwide, all examples of racism, the LGBT lifestyle, the trans movement, cancer, all disease, all of it was preordained because it pleased God that this would happen somehow. Now, if you talk to an honest Calvinist, that's what they'll say. Somehow, this pleased God that this would happen. There's no way you will ever convince me that the horrible things that I've seen happen in this world somehow pleased God. Because I read in Scripture that God has anger towards things that these things God abhors, that these things God hates. You cannot hate or have anger or wrath or judgment about something that you preordained. It's like sending your kid to the garage to get you a tool and they bring it back to you and you get mad because they got into your toolbox. The only fool in that situation was you. Now at the same time, it makes, think about this, it makes God responsible for sin and the fall of man. Because if all things were preordained from the foundations of the earth, then Adam and Eve didn't sin. They were just playing a part. They didn't have the option to do otherwise. Does that sound like the, word, the, the, the God that you read about in Scripture? Does that sound like the character and nature of God that you see? John 1 says, but, many has, men, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. John 5, 24 says, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes, that's the language of choice, folks, 
And him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning uh, his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us. Now listen, not willing that any should perish, perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, is that all the elect? And everybody else is just going to spend eternity in hell because God finds it fun? Somehow he finds that pleasing? I don't think so. John 1, 9. If we confess, uh, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That sounds like the God that I know. How about this one? For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without law towards God uh, 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 myself. Excuse me, because that's annoying. Um, that I might win those that are, uh, who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this one, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, but do this with meekness and with fear. That list of scriptures that talk about the language of choice and God desiring all of us to come to know him goes on and on and on and on. And those are in line with the character and nature of God. But here's my biggest problem with the doctrine of election, and the one thing that I hope you guys take away from today, that if the doctrine of election were true, then the gospel is a joke. Think about that for a second. If the doctrine of election is true, then the entirety of the gospel message is a joke, and the cross has moved from the altar of our salvation to a cruel joke waved in the face of people who will never be able to accept its promise. And I, for one, can't go there. I will never be, I will never be able to believe that God created a system, created before, earth, before let there be light was even spoken into existence, that God decided that he would create a system that would fool most and save a few. And then condemn those that he has already chosen to fool to an eternity of judgment. I will never believe that about God. It's completely contrary to what we know about God in Scripture. The gospel is not without hope. The gospel is hope. It is our only hope. In John 3, the words of Jesus himself, he says, As Moses was lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. When I read the scriptures, I see God stepping 
stepping in to correct a problem that we created. I see God counteracting a choice that should have never been made by offering us another choice. You've heard me talk about this before. We chose not to believe the word of God. Now we can choose to believe the word of God. One leads to judgment. The other one leads to salvation. Choose. Through scripture, how many times are we told, how many times are we told choose this day whom you will serve? Choose this day. When I look at Christ, I see the object of our salvation. I see the one who paid the price for the sin of mankind and who redeemed us back into the family of God. I see the Lord sending us into the world to make disciples. I see the Lord bringing hope to a world that is lost, broken, and afraid. And I, for one, will spend the rest of my days doing exactly that. Because if what I'm bringing is only for a few, why bring it? If the gospel is not for all, then it's somebody else can go bring it. I, I'm not, why waste my time? There's other things that I can do because I'm either chosen or not. But the fact of the matter is we're told over and over and over again, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be sure to make your calling and elections sure. Spend time daily, take up your cross, study the word so that you are one who would not be ashamed. How many other different ways does God have to say it? Choose every day, take up your cross and follow me. I don't know how that language could get any clearer. But for some reason, we keep getting into this fight in the church. And what it does, it comes down to this for me. When someone says, one of these days, and this has been said to me, one of these days you'll learn enough to embrace Calvinism. And my basic answer is basically this. I hope that I stay ignorant enough to believe that I have choice so that I can offer that same choice to everybody else. Because if God chose them, then it doesn't matter. But if he didn't, it makes all the difference in the world. So I'll live my life like there's a choice because if there's not, I'd rather not know. <laughs> And that presents a challenge to you. That if you believe it's already written, and keep doing whatever it is you're doing that makes you feel good about yourself. But if you honestly believe that people have a choice when they hear the gospel to believe or not, then we have something very important to do. And that is to go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all the things in which we have been commanded knowing full well that God will be with us the entire time there's a lot of people out in this world who need the gospel and they're not getting it because we're not bringing it I think that's a sad reality that we have the ability to change don't we so let's get out there and share our faith and just see what happens. What's the worst thing they're going to happen? Say no? If they say no, it's because they were chosen from the foundation of the earth to say no. I used to hear it said like this, and I'll, I'll pray for us and then we'll be done, that if I end up in heaven, I end up in heaven because I was, so, I was sovereignly chosen and elected before the foundations of the earth to be in heaven. And if I end up in hell, I went there of my own free will. <laughs> so, 
Let's, let's do our best to give everyone the option to make that choice.